0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project UP, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.
1: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, Conversations about connecting and communicating.
2: I feel comfortable saying that I'm an atheist. Even though you can't prove there's no God, there's no way to prove a negative, um, God is conveniently invisible. <laughs> I don't need to give that particular imaginary creature any more benefit of my doubt than I give, you know, monsters that may or may not be in the closet of my kid's room, right? Why do we have a much, much, much higher requirement for this particular imaginary being than we have for other ones that we easily say, no, no, that's not true. It was made up.
1: That's Washington Post columnist Kate Cohen. She's written a thoughtful book called We of Little Faith, Why I Stopped Pretending to Believe, and Maybe You Should Too, it's about the difficulty she had in finally admitting to family and friends that she was an atheist. Her goal, she says, isn't to convince believers to become unbelievers, but to convince non-believers like her of the value of being honest and forthright about their non-belief. You know, we talk a lot about communication on this podcast. And one of the most difficult communications to have is a difficult conversation about coming out. And your story is not like most coming out stories, is it?
2: Uh, no, I guess it isn't.
1: For so many years, once you realized you weren't a believer, you found it hard to tell others that you were an atheist. Why, why did it take so long?
2: I wanted everyone to like me. <laughs> <Yes>. And <laughs> growing up in uh, America, I... Absolutely. Got the, I think, probably true impression that um, atheists or people who didn't believe in God were suspect in some way. Um, Possibly immoral, um, absolutely alien. And so I wasn't honest with people around me.
1: And that included your family, didn't it?
2: That certainly included my my parents, my family that I grew up with. Um, I was raised Reform Jewish. We went to synagogue, and we had Shabbos dinner every Friday night. We lit candles, and I was bat mitzvah. My sisters and I were all bat mitzvah, and I would sit in synagogue and pray and sing like everybody else, but I never really believed that the person, that the, that there was a person, that there was a supernatural being actually listening to my prayers. I always thought of God as a literary character, hmm. a rich source of tradition, and because and, I was Jewish, a rich source of argument um, and discussion and lore, but not an actual being who was up there um, who cared about how my day went. So that's what I thought. I didn't really have discussions with my parents about what they believed. You know, it's certainly possible that they felt the same way.
1: Did you ever find out? Were you ever able to have any discussions with them? (laughs)
2: Um, Yes. And um, my father tells a story now about how... Um, he, he wasn't sure until my mom got cancer and then it was like, you know, screw this. I don't believe this. Uh, You know, (laughs) that was his moment of rejecting the idea.
1: Some people go the other way when there's a a health crisis. Yeah. They feel it's time to make a deal. So when was it that you finally had to face up to the fact that you had to tell someone else? (laughs)
2: Um, It was when I had kids. Yeah. It was when I had kids. And that really made me take a leap. At first, just in the privacy of our living room. But that really made me articulate what I really believed. Uh, Because I felt... More than wanting to be liked by people, I felt this um, kind of awesome responsibility to them and to their developing brains. And I realized that, you know, when they're little, everything they know comes through you. Um, And I felt that power. I felt that power. And I felt very serious about not Passing on to them anything I didn't believe and, and telling them wh- how the world was as I saw it. It was just very important to me. I didn't want anything to get in the way, any sort of lies or, or not even lies, conventional wisdom. Um, you know, the sort of easy things that people say to their kids when the cat dies or something like that.
1: What prompted the conversation? Had your cat died?
2: <laughs> the first conversation was really, we were reading a book of uh, Greek myths.
1: And your kids were how old?
2: Five and three. I, I must have been pregnant with a third. So I had the two little boys in their little footy pajamas. And it was Dolaire's book of Greek myths. And one of them said, well, what, what's a myth? And I said... It's a story people tell about how the world works, like the stories of Moses that we tell for Passover, and like the stories uh, about Jesus that people tell around Christmas time. It's it's a story about how the world works, and it's called a myth when people don't believe it anymore, and it's called religion when people still believe it. Um, But they're just, they're all stories that people made up because they didn't understand how things worked. Uh, They didn't understand where thunder came from, for example, you know, when we talk about Zeus. And so that's where it started. And they just nod and they take it in. And then, you know, every little step then, every conversation that you have, you have to think about, well, do I really think this? Do I really believe this? Um, It was a wonderful way to raise kids, honestly, because it meant that everything, every difficult thing about life and every wonderful thing about life, we could talk about them and experience them together without any kind of anything in the way, any, any, any story I was trying to tell them or appearance I was trying to keep up or anything like that. All of that was cleared away and we could just talk about what it means to be dead, for
1: example how did you talk about that because that's that's a difficult idea that's for, difficult for anybody to get absolutely and as, i think especially kids especially if a death occurs in the family or to a pet yeah didn't you had an experience like that didn't you
2: i think my eldest was 2 when his uncle's dog died and you know i i definitely was sort of like, well, what do I do? Uh, obviously, I didn't want to say that the dog went to heaven, didn't believe that. You don't say he went to go live on a farm. We lived on a farm. That wouldn't have, <laughs> <laughs> That wouldn't have worked.
1: Some, and you some can other definitely be, better farm.
2: Cannot, right, <laughs> a bigger farm. You cannot say that the dog went to sleep. That is bad. You don't do that because... Um, the
1: kid's afraid to go to sleep then. kid's
2: afraid to go to sleep. So what I realized is that... I could just say that Lobo was, was dead and that then my son could ask questions about what that meant and what that meant could sort of accrue significance over time. You know, when I say dead, even as a 30 year old, however old I was, it it has all these tendrils into sorrowful things and the terrible things that people do to one another and I don't know it, it has such a, a heaviness that it doesn't necessarily have to have to a child they'll that that will come in time I just felt that if I used the right language and I made it clear that that Noah wasn't going to see Lobo again um it would be confusing it's confusing for everybody that mm. you know something that you love is there and then it's Never there again. It's just baffling. But I wouldn't be uh, weighing it down with you know any untruths, anything but what he wanted to know or needed to know at that point. I mean, he was too.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good good path to follow. I think. Is yeah. What are their questions actually? You're right. I think adults too sometimes wonder about what the experience of death is like. As though you would experience it the way you experience things when you're alive. Last week, I was talking to someone who I knew when they were a child, and they had asked me, what do you feel when you're dead? Do you feel, how can you feel nothingness? And apparently, he reminded me that I said to him, well, you feel the same thing you feel before you're born. Yeah. What did you feel then? That's a good answer. (laughs) <laughs> and and I, I don't know if that was original to me, but it's a good idea.
2: It is a good idea. It's so hard to conceive of our own non-existence. I really believe that's where religion came from. I really believe it. it it's this complicated architecture. Each one is this beautiful uh, human construction, this complicated creation to just avoid this one piece of knowledge that we came upon quite early, you know, in human existence, and how do you deal with that? We came up with some just incredible concepts. I, you know, I always say that God is a human invention and religion is a human invention, and I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way, right? I mean, I think it's kind of beautiful sometimes to think about the lengths That people have gone to, to um, comfort themselves in the face of their own mortality.
1: Which is why I personally, although I'm not a believer, I'm very careful about how I spread that around, because a lot of people seem to really need that. Yeah. That belief, and to take it away from them is cruel.
2: But is your saying you're not a believer taking it away from someone else?
1: No, but I don't sermonize about it. Okay. I don't try to convince them. Right. There was no, a time I don't either. There was a time when I was very young when I was a very staunch right. believer. And I used to make sermons to people because they should believe because what I believed was obviously true. I wanted them to right. have the benefit <laughs> of my <laughs> of my truth. Right. But now I thank goodness I'm older and a little more compassionate about people around me. If they believe it, maybe they need to believe it. As long as they don't keep me from believing and Correct. acting on my own beliefs.
2: Exactly. Or as long as they don't sort of start to try to make laws, for example, based on their beliefs that affect your life. Right. I I, I totally agree with you. And my book is not in any way an argument against religion or an argument against God. I'm not trying to convince believers not to believe I am trying to convince people who don't believe to be comfortable with that and to be honest about it to raise their kids that way um I'm really trying to give people courage Mm -hmm. and to ask people to live more honestly because I think it's just incredibly rewarding like I say I, I I regret some of the Years that I spent sort of passing as a believer, partly because of the, you know, the the relationships that I didn't have, the conversations I didn't have. And since I have started to talk about it more and to be more honest, I was astounded how many people responded with anything from, you know, interest Mm -hmm. to stories of their own about they're not believing or about their doubts or about their religious upbringing whatever it was i didn't find what i expected which was that it would cut me off from people to be honest i found the opposite that it it made me feel more connected to people that there were people out there who wanted to have these conversations and then just didn't like like i hadn't didn't feel like they were supposed to say anything i mean there really is an assumption in this country still, that belief in God is sort of the, the, the base point, the, the starting point, you know, that maybe we all believe in different gods or maybe we have different religions, but the belief in a higher power is a necessity.
1: My guess is that it was difficult for you to stop passing as a believer hmm. because you don't always know what the consequences will be.
2: Right.
1: Will you lose your job? Will you lose a friend? Will someone think you're not trustworthy? You're not you can't possibly be a moral person. How do you navigate that? How do you how do you know yeah. when to speak up and when not to?
2: I would say that I feel myself to be in a position of great privilege with regard to that issue. I live in a fairly liberal area I live in Albany, New York. I have open-minded friends and family. Um, I'm I'm white. I'm in a, you know very secure position financially. All these things. Generally speaking, I'm in a position where I'm not risking much. The risk that I took that I felt the the most seriously, and I talk about it in the book, had to do with my husband's families, particularly his father and the expectations that he had on us uh, in terms of raising our kids. And so when my son Noah was born, we decided not to have a bris, which is a ritual circumcision and um, a party that goes along with it. And we decided not to do that. And (laughs) um, my father-in-law refused to hold his grandson for eight days. And it was, you know, it was very upsetting. I don't think we knew what was going to happen when we sort of made the decision. And I suppose, in a way, eight days of not not being held by your grandfather is not a big deal. But it um, it wasn't a good way to start. <laughs> wasn't a good way to start. Um, so, so the, it was, it, you know. Again, the risk that I took um, was family disharmony. And what I argue in my book is that people who are risking less possibly have more of a responsibility to be honest, to come out, um, you might say, than people who are living in a place where they might... um, truly be risking their jobs or their kids could get bullied or, you know, or even something more, um, violent, perhaps. I, I never, I never f- had any kind of fear on that level. Honestly, it was always more about wanting, uh, to seem like a good person and, um, And I feel that the more kind of regular people around the country who can say without rancor, oh, no, you know, I don't believe that there's a supernatural being in charge, the more people will understand that you can be a perfectly good person, you know, perfectly... um, Involved in the PTA, perfectly teaching your kid manners everything, and and not believe in God.
1: When we come back from our break, I talk with Kate Cohen some more about her conviction that you don't have to believe in God to be a moral person. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the Center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other in all the ways it influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Kate Cohen. We've been talking about her experience of talking with people who believe that atheists can't, almost by definition, have morals. Have you had conversations like that, where you were confronted with the idea that if you're not religious, you don't have a moral ground? Yes. How did those conversations go?
2: Well, I have a whole chapter on morality in my book. Um because although I think that death is really the reason why religion was invented, morality is kind of like why we all think we're supposed to believe, you know? Mm. But morality there's this sort of like, oh, this is where our ethics comes from and mm. we we if we let go of religion, we won't have that anymore. Um and so my book, I um have a jolly old time, <laughs> showing that morality does not come from religion. That, and it, it's not hard to do, and it is not about whether or not religious people are moral or not. Not at all. Uh, it is about how different people focus on different parts of their holy books to emphasize and other parts to completely ignore, right? You, some people focus on um, the parts that say that men are not supposed to have sex with other men and think that that is the most important thing. And some people focus on the parts that say you're supposed to feed the hungry and help the poor and think that that's the most important thing.
1: And there are parts that today make it hard for us to read without a critical eye, like the best way to treat your slaves.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. And good people who believe, just either ignore those parts, decide those parts are outdated, decide they're metaphorical, to reinterpret them in whatever way, which is totally fine. I'm glad rather they did that than that they took them literally. But my point would be that you're bringing or those people are bringing their own morality to their religious texts, their own, their innate sense of right and wrong that's what they're doing to decide whether christianity is about you know helping the, the the weakest among us or whether christianity is about you know enforcing sexual sexual mores or um you know gender hierarchy or something like that so people um religious people all the time are using their own in, innate sense of right and wrong to pick and choose And I feel like this is sort of evidence that morality doesn't come from their books. You know, they bring it to their books. They bring it to their teaching. Um, I've met amazing, wonderful religious people who even see God in, in, in a very specific way that comes from that comes from them and who they are as people. And that's, that's the God that they believe in. Um, And, and I feel like that is the answer to that morality question. It's sort of like, it's all there. You can use it for good and you can use it for evil. People use it to inspire people and people use it to um, hurt other people. And it's not that it comes from there in any sense. I really think it's a very simple question of the golden rule, essentially, uh, which I <laughs> I I repurpose as the rule of how would you feel? You know, that's kind of what all parents use. Um, mm. I don't know any religious parents who are actually looking up chapter and verse before they, you know, have a have a talking to to their kid about, you know hurting another kid.
1: The question you're bringing up is the question of respect for the other person, Mm -hmm. whatever they believe. For instance, some people are comfortable calling themselves atheists. Other people are more comfortable calling themselves agnostics. Mm -hmm. And what they mean by it varies by what definitions they give to those two words. I mean, atheist could mean that you're without a God. You just simply don't believe in a God. Or it could mean you know there's no God, or it can mean that you believe you can prove there's no God. Right. <laughs> which is kind of difficult to do.
2: Yes, you can't do that. It's
1: pretty hard to prove a negative. To be an agnostic can mean to some people, I don't know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. If there is mm-hmm. good, I'm on board. If there isn't, that's okay too.
2: Right.
1: Or it could mean I can't know whether or not there is or there isn't. So I'm confined to saying I don't know, but not right. in the way of saying, I don't know, therefore, let's all say our prayers.
2: <laughs> I feel comfortable saying that I'm an atheist. Um, even though you can't prove there's no God, there's no way to prove a negative, um, God is conveniently invisible. and um, <laughs> But I feel like I don't need to give that particular imaginary creature any more benefit of my doubt than I give, you know, monsters that may or may not be in the closet of my kid's room, right? I can just say, no, there are no monsters. If I get any kind of proof to the contrary or evidence in the future, (laughs) I will will say, oh, I was wrong. There are monsters. And I feel the same way about atheism. But I feel like, why do we have a, a, a much, much, much higher requirement for this particular imaginary being than we have for other ones that we easily say, no, no, that's not true. It doesn't, it's it's not true. It was made up.
1: So your book is really directed at people who have decided that they're atheists, hoping to give them the courage to say so.
2: I think maybe even more people who have felt that they needed to pass on religion to their kids, to carry on whatever faith they were raised in because kids need religion or because that's the sort of responsible thing to do. You know, people who are doing it without really believing it. I want people to um, own up, match a little bit more their their beliefs with their behavior, and also to know that you can raise kids, um, you know, you can sort of face all the the sort of things that we face in life without having that religious structure or without a belief in a higher power. Um, so half of my book is really about each of the things that I feel like religion promises to give or, or does give people, and, and, and my search to find whether or not I can give those things to my kids or have those things for myself. So the question of dealing with death is in there, and the question of morality, but also things that are, you know, like churches, which I love. I love churches, and I feel like they uh, play a wonderful part in civic life. So how do we get that you know, without belief?
1: That's a really interesting question because in many parts of the country, the social life of the community revolves around a church. If the ranks of unbelievers grows to such an extent that we lose those centers of community, what can we replace them with? What can give us the benefit of having people who you trust, who you have a communion with, how can we have that in the absence of belief?
2: Since writing this book, I have been to some amazing um places where people are building community. I was just in Orlando with the Central Florida Free Thought Community. It's incredible. The the number of things on their November calendar, you know, sewing circles or volunteer opportunities or 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 wonderful speakers like me or (laughs) (laughs) it's incredible it's a lot of work and you know i had to laugh sometimes because i feel like people turn their noses up at so-called organized religion and i always say the organization is the best part you know it's the you know these people are organized, and that is hard to do. It's mm. hard to, um, for me, it would be hard to be a member of something where the, the the core idea, the the animating concept, is this you know thing that I don't believe. But I, it's an excellent question: where else to find it? In my book, I talk about noticing where you already have it. I'm sitting here right now in a public library which has events all the time and um, has free internet for people like me who live on farms and has places to, to bring your kids when it's cold and you need, you, know, you need to entertain them in some way. So libraries could be the answer too. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's a space, it's organization, it takes money, Um, and then there's also that sense of community of, of like-mindedness, some of which probably just comes from doing things together, achieving things together, putting on a, a soup pantry. But, you know, I think we have these extra spaces in our lives and we might need to turn more attention to them if we're not going to invest in our churches or if we don't feel we can for whatever reason.
1: And there's the pleasure of the rituals. You have a charming yeah. a charming <laughs> section in the book where you talk about creating your own holidays. Yes. <laughs> over pizza. I love Death.
2: that. Yes. So that chapter um is sort of about my hunt for a holiday that I can both believe in, really believe in, and also share with uh the community around me, which is the feeling that Um, you know, I think real believers have about things like Christmas. I mean, how wonderful to sort of actually believe in this and also be sharing it with your neighbors. And um, I I tried a bunch of different holidays. And the the one that stuck is one that we just happened upon. It was just accidental, um, which was International Pizza Day.
1: This is an, an internationally recognized day.
2: Yes, I think it is an internationally recognized day. It's on some calendars, Alan. I mean, we don't have to be too, you know. It's definitely on my mom's calendar. Anyway, uh, so we just happened to read a book called Pizza for the Queen by Nancy Costaldo. And at the end, it had a little note. It said, if you want to celebrate pizza, February 9th is International Pizza Day. And I think it was February 4th. So, kismet we're going to do this. We're going to celebrate International Pizza Day. And we just made homemade pizzas. And then it stuck. We just kept doing it every year and it got bigger and bigger and bigger.
1: More and now people we wanted like, to join you, right?
2: People wanted to join. Um, and then once they got on the list, couldn't get them back off the list. <laughs> but the, the problem is that International Pizza Day involves Homemade pizza crusts and, you know, ho- oh, homemade toppings and everything. So it is now the hugest pain. But I, I I really believe that a really good holiday has to be something that is, you know, exhausting.
1: <laughs> like like Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving like is,
2: Thanksgiving. is exactly. murder for the
1: person who does the cooking.
2: Absolutely. But and everybody, just,
1: everybody appreciates it and joins in, I'll, I'll bring the cranberry.
2: Right. And and it, it's actually important to give people jobs because there should be some effort. I feel like that is kind of what what makes it stick, you know. At Thanksgiving, because it's secular, that ended up being kind of, really, it's, it's my favorite holiday. Um, well,
1: now everybody will be celebrating International Pizza Day. Well,
2: and that would be great. If we could just, if this book does one thing and spreads <laughs> International Pizza Day around so that It's not just a thing in my house, but it's a thing in everybody's house. That would be awesome. Pizza. I mean, who doesn't love pizza?
1: A great and delicious way to end the conversation. (laughs) We always end our conversations with seven quick questions. First question. Of all the things there are to understand, what do you wish you really understood?
2: I wish I understood music. Hmm. I feel its power. I love it. Um, But I don't feel like I really understand the way it works. And I feel like I might be a little too old to understand it on a kind of automatic level. My kids all learned um, when they were really young. Good for them. And I blame my
1: parents. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
2: I guess this depends. If it's just me and a person, and I really think I can try to convince someone, I'd start with questions, I think. I would say, you know, where did you read that? Or where did you hear that? Or why do you think that? that? That might be the best way to go. But it's tough to do, as we know.
1: Yeah. Okay, next. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
2: Yeah, I think I'd go back to what we were talking about before, which is how do you teach your kids right and wrong? Where do you get your morality? And I think it's strange because it is invariably coming from people who don't use religion to teach their children right or wrong. You know, I don't know people who would say, hang on, let me check Leviticus and let me just see, you know, what's right here. Um, Nobody... (laughs) Nobody that I know—I'm sure there are people—but nobody that I know teaches their kids right and wrong using the Bible or the Torah or the Quran. Um, they use other things. So it's funny to me that they still ask it as if that's where moral authority resides.
1: Okay, good. Next, how do you deal with a compulsive talker?
2: Well, I would try to foist that person onto someone else. <laughs> I would say— <laughs>
1: You must meet this person.
2: Exactly. That is so interesting. Have you met my husband?
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's say you're sitting next to someone at a dinner table who you've never met.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. How
1: do you begin a genuine conversation?
2: By sharing something, by being honest about something, um, by by making it clear that you are willing to skip that first layer and go to some truth about yourself.
1: Okay, next to last. What gives you confidence?
2: Probably started with um, always feeling loved and safe. So my parents can have credit back for that now that they've uh, they messed up the music thing. I will, I will give them credit. <laughs> and I guess I would say sometimes when I'm feeling insecure or uncertain, In a social situation, for example, I just remind myself that probably other people are too. And then I pretend that it's my job to make them feel more comfortable. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you feel like you have that purpose and that's your job, you know, the the insecurities kind of go away.
1: Last question. All right. What book changed your life?
2: I'm a reader, lifelong reader. This is really tough one. My mind flashes to um, when I was a kid and my father would read us P.G. Woodhouse stories. Do you know P.G. Woodhouse? We would go to his study. His study was also where the wood stove was. So we'd all crowd around and he'd read us these stories. And he would be in the middle of a story and he would start to crack up, squealing with laughter. He could not stop himself. (laughs) And of course, then we're all cracking up. We, you know, it was hilarious. But the image of a person looking at a page and laughing uncontrollably, it's just miraculous to me. I feel like my sort of respect for the w- written word partly comes from that and and that that sort of joy that it can bring people. And I feel like even... When I'm talking about serious things, you know, in, in in We Have Little Faith, there's chapters on death, there's chapters on morality. I still think it's important to be silly and have fun. And if we're not cracking up every once in a while, you know, what are we even doing?
1: <laughs> well, I, I, I love it that after this conversation, you finally have something you feel is miraculous.
2: <laughs> That's Right.
1: This has been a really fun conversation, Kate. Thank you so much.
2: Good. It's a pleasure and an honor.
1: This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the descent of for communicating science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Kate Cohen is a Washington Post contributing columnist. Her new book is We of Little Faith, Why I Stopped Pretending to Believe, and Maybe You Should Too. You can check in with her at katecohen.net. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio, Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the charismatic actor Leslie Odom Jr. He's one of the stars of the hit musical Hamilton and the hit revival of the great play by Ossie Davis, Pearly Victorious. Here he is talking about the time he discovered the exhilaration of abandoning caution. And the next day I came, I was so pissed off. I said, OK, you want me to go to 10? I'm going to go to 17
0: and and i'll show you i'll show you not only am i going to fail this whole production's going to fail the audience is going to walk out they're they're going to shut the show down and i hope you're happy like i alex i was i was so enraged and ready to show him how wrong he was that i went to 17 and then i went to 18 and 25 and 37 and it, and the sky opened up. I don't know if you saw Hamilton, but I come out at Hamilton. I'm like, how soon can I get to 17? Like, you know, in the opening number, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get there as quick as possible because I, I love that space now. It's the, the abandon of that
1: space. Leslie Odom Jr., now starring in the hit revival of the play Pearly Victorious. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
0: Do you want in on a secret that high-performance marketing teams use to drive ROI? AdRoll gives your business the marketing edge you need to make hitting your goals easier while saving time. AdRoll optimizes ad campaigns across display, native, and social media channels all in one place. Deduplicate conversion attribution across channels and even trigger emails based on user interactions. Sign up at adroll.com slash ROI to join the club. Chapter one, Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood Our hero, Titus Burgess,